This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. For 123 consecutive years, the Boston Athletic Association, an elite running club started in 1887, has hosted the Boston Marathon, the oldest continuously held marathon in the world. This grand, unbroken tradition came to an abrupt end when one month before the planned race date, the city and Commonwealth went into lockdown in response to a novel virus that was spreading across the world. Hoping to preserve the marathon, a race that brings 30,000 runners and $200 million to the Boston economy each year, race leaders, in coordination with the eight municipalities along the course, needed to work quickly to develop contingencies that might preserve the race while ensuring the public's safety. But COVID-19 had other plans, and the 2020 race slipped out of reach. Now in 2021, with the dawn of safe and effective vaccines, those same intrepid leaders now prepare for the 125th running of the Boston Marathon to be held on Monday, October 11th. At the helm of the Boston Athletic Association, through it all, was its chief executive, Tom Grilk. Having been the president of the board of directors from 2003, and its executive director since 2011, Mr. Grilk has led the marathon through the challenges posed by nor'easters, heat waves, and terrorist attacks. But little could have prepared him for managing a major marathon in the face of a global pandemic. What was it like to guide the Boston Marathon through a public health threat that is still not completely understood? Mr. Grilk will share with us how public leaders worked together as the crisis unfolded, and how he plans to hold the 125th Boston Marathon this year for the first time in October. When I return, I'll be joined by the Boston Athletic Association Chief Executive, Tom Grilk. Hubwonk is a production of Pioneer Institute, a Boston-based think tank that seeks to improve the quality of life in Massachusetts and beyond. Pioneer is a 501c3 organization that relies on your support. Please visit pioneerinstitute.org to make a tax-deductible donation today. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by the Boston Athletic Association's CEO, Tom Grilk. Welcome to Hubwonk, Tom. Well, Joe, thank you. I'm uh, glad for the chance to chat. Well, this, uh, this conversation is a special treat for me as a runner. Uh, there's so much I want to talk about, uh, but I'd like to offer some background for listeners uh, who aren't runners. Uh, so I, I've compared, I've said to them, getting an opportunity to talk with you is perhaps uh, something akin to a, a, a Catholic person getting a chance to spend time with the Pope. Uh, this is really wonderful. But let's let's talk about why Boston is so special, why the marathon is so special, why the BAA is so special. I mean, all running clubs uh, promote running and all marathons are 26 miles, 385 yards. So what makes the Boston Marathon and the BAA so special? The Boston Marathon benefits, I suppose, from being the the oldest, the longest contested annual marathon in the world, uh, going back to 1897. The BAA was founded in 1887. Uh, the Olympic Games were revived in Athens in 1896, and the BAA uh, sent a majority of Team USA uh, to those games, along with the New York Athletic Club. Uh, and while they were there, uh, winning a majority of gold medals for the U.S., these uh, BAA athletes, uh, 
they also saw the long distance run, which was about a 24 mile run or so, starting out at the plains of Marathon, where the Battle of Marathon was fought in 490 BC. And as legend has it, Phidippides ran back to Athens to tell the Athenians of their victory, stood before them, said, rejoice, we conquer, and dropped dead. <laughs> so it was a, a, both a joyous and a regrettable ending to the first one. Uh, but the BAA athletes who were there uh, thought that the idea of a marathon in Boston would be an interesting idea. So the following year, in 1897, the Boston Marathon was conducted for the very first time, uh, starting in those days in Ashland at Metcalf's Mill, which you can still go out to and see a little monument there. Uh, and it stayed that way for a number of years uh, until, in, I think in the 1920s, it was moved to Hopkinton because the marathon distance was standardized at the Olympics uh, to 41.125 or whatever it is, kilometers, uh, 26.2 miles. Uh, and so we've had a, a start that goes all the way back to the beginning in Ashland, but more traditionally, and certainly for many decades, as the sign out in Hopkinson says, it all starts here. The BAA has kept it going for all of those years. The BAA had good years uh, early on, and then in the Depression fell into bankruptcy. Uh, and there really wasn't much left of the BAA in those days other than putting on the Boston Marathon and the old BAA games, indoor games at the Boston Garden, uh, which finished in about 1969 or 70. Interestingly, our current board chair, Dr. Michael O'Leary, uh, now a uh, professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School, senior urologic surgeon uh, uh, at the Brigham, was a Harvard track athlete who ran in those final games. Uh, so there are lots of little linear connections that, uh, that run through all of this. As to what made Boston special, history certainly did that. Um, but as so often happens, uh, and so often in, in the business world, in the world of marketing, one of the things that really added to the cachet of the marathon happened almost accidentally, which is to say the advent of qualifying times. For a long time, anybody could enter the marathon uh, and come run, uh, show up in Hopkinton, maybe have a very perfunctory physical examination made of them, including by Dr. O'Leary's father. Uh, Dr. O'Leary having grown up as a kid at mile seven uh, of the race, but then it got bigger. Uh, and around 1970, the BAA Board of Governors was confronted with a somewhat frightening reality that there could be more than a thousand runners in the Boston Marathon. What to do? Uh, how do you contain the field so that it would not get out of control? And there were several choices. One would be simply first come, first served. Uh, another would be a lottery, which is a pretty common approach to solving that sort of problem. But given the BAA's history as a competitive or, uh, organization uh, that, that thrived on competition going all the way back to those Olympic games and before, the decision was made uh, that the field would be limited by competition, by qualifying times. One would have to meet a certain time. And with that, over the years, that became quite a lure for people to qualify for Boston, uh, getting what is often referred to as a BQ, a Boston qualifying time, <laughs> Uh, became something of a badge of honor among people. Uh, and as that happened, uh, the pressure to get in grew, the field size grew, and the qualifying times came down, uh, having gotten as low as two hours and 50 minutes for men under 40 back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, 
so with, with that came a, a fair degree of cachet, not made as a marketing decision, but one that could be touted that way if one uh, uh, had been around in 1970 on the BAA board and said that was their motivation. Sure. It's a, it's a wonderful, I appreciate the background. It's a wonderful story with uh, what came uh, as a, uh, a stunt after coming back from the Olympics with 15 guys out in Ashland has now become uh, a global event. And you, I think, rightly point out the uh, qualifying time does make Boston unique. As they say, every other uh, marathon is merely a qualifying race to to get to Boston. Which um, we would never say. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Um, but the time has come down and actually gone back up. I think now the uh, without any uh, age or sex uh, handicap, uh, the qualifying open time is three hours, five minutes. Still a pretty fast pace. Um I, I believe uh, we'll we'll give you a chance here. Your own PR or BQ was uh, a little faster than that. Do you want to uh, share with our listeners oh, what your PR? Incrementally, yeah. I, it <laughs> took me several tries to get under three hours long, long ago, and I failed on multiple occasions. I finally made it. Uh, and then instantly the qualifying time was lowered <laughs> to two hours and 50 minutes. Uh, and a couple of uh, very kind friends who were very good runners put me in between them and uh, I ran along with them and I got to 249.03, which is faster than I could ever otherwise hope to do. And then quite by accident, I became the finish line announcer at the marathon, which was a whole lot easier than running it. So <laughs> sure. I haven't run it since. So, but you can empathize with the, uh, with the pain as they come across the finish line. So that, uh, that, very that's, well. quite, that's right. Um, now, despite the formidable uh, qualifying times, you talked about the the awful specter of having as many as a thousand runners. Uh, now we know in uh, many marathons, I think there's a thousand marathons around the world. There, there are some uh, that are 50, 60,000, but Boston's limited. Um, we've only got that little road in Hopkinton where we start. Um, as you say, it all starts here, but down a effectively a two lane road uh, where you have to get a bunch of people down all at the same time. Uh, how, uh, how many uh, runners do qualify and how do you limit the race now? Well, there, there, th this year, uh, there will be 20,000. We had gotten up to 31,500 prior to the pandemic. Uh, and and we're limited because the Boston Marathon goes through eight different municipalities within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So there are multiple governmental agencies uh, at multiple levels that have a say in how long we can have the roads, unlike professional sports teams, there is no stadium that we can use. So we are, uh, we operate uh, with the good graces of all of those municipalities and, and they'd like to get their town back. When the Boston Marathon comes through, pretty much everything else stops. Uh, it's hard to even get across the street, although some very creative ways <laughs> have been achieved uh, for doing that. Uh, and, and so we talk every year, uh, informally and very formally with each municipality about, uh, what will be acceptable to, to them, uh, for that year. And that's where the field size comes from. The, the towns are magnificently accommodating, uh, but they also need to balance the needs of their citizens and simply people who go <clears throat> who go through the cities and towns. Uh, so we work very closely with them all the time. And then this year with the advent of the pandemic, that process uh, uh, was followed again um, with an immense amount of rigor because of the public safety risks presented by the disease. Of course. And beyond, I want to get to uh, the challenges of the pandemic. But again, setting the stage, 
uh, beyond qualified runners, there's also quite a few charity runners who contribute quite a bit to their respective charities. Can you uh, offer some dimensions on how many charity runners and, and approximately how much money they're able to run uh, raise for their, their charities? Well, uh, charity runners, the, the, the charity program has grown uh, going back all the way to 1989, I think was the very first time. I think the American Liver Foundation uh, was the, uh, the the first official charity of the Boston Marathon. Uh, and if I look to 2019, the last time we ran on the course uh, in a not virtual way, there were 1,575, I believe, uh, official charity runners across the BAA's own program and the uh, John, our principal sponsor, John Hancock, uh, they were, uh, some of them, a great many of them, over a thousand, uh, were in the John Hancock nonprofit program. Uh, this year, we had to cut the field size in order to uh, promote public safety, public health, but we pretty well brought back the same number of charity runners. Uh, a lot uh, had worked very hard to get ready to run in 2020 and couldn't do it. Uh, and the impact of that program, uh, which in 2019, across the John Hancock program and ours, approached $40 million. It was 30 and a half or something. Wow. Um, we didn't want to see that go away. And those are very difficult choices. What that means is that if we diminish the field size, but don't diminish the charity field, some qualified runners don't get to run. Uh, and as one who had such a hard time myself uh, qualifying, I understand the frustration that that brings. Uh, and it's, it's never uh, an easy balance. Uh, but uh, we wanted to, to see that um, the people who work so hard to raise money had the opportunity to do it. Um, it is, of course, very hard to qualify to get into the Boston Marathon. It is also very hard to be a charity runner. Uh, we established a limit uh, of at least $5,000 that needs to be raised uh, on average by every runner for every charity organization. But in fact, uh, across the BAA program and the John Hancock program, the average amount raised per runner is more like $10,000. So that means that in addition to training for a marathon, which is hard, you then have to go out and, in many cases, pretty well hit up everybody you ever knew for money. Uh, and that's pretty enervating for a lot of people. It surely would be sure. for me. Um, so great respect for, for the charity runners, immense respect for the people who qualify, and not enough room to have everybody all the time. In theory, we could be getting people out to hop content and just following them down the street all day long. But the, the towns would be overwhelmed by it. Indeed. Uh, so, um, so we can go uh, further into how much of a challenge it is to pull off the Boston Marathon. As you say, it's ordinarily roughly 30,000 runners. It's eight municip municipalities because it's point to point. It's from Hopkinton running straight back in. Um, so uh, that's not that's, uh, every year something like uh, the Normandy invasion uh, uh, all over again. So uh, let's let's do some uh, uh, history here. Um, the Boston is typically or traditionally run on the third Monday in April. Uh, if we go back to 2020, March 10th, we had uh, the governor come on and tell us uh, there's this thing called COVID-19. Uh, we had uh, we're going to have a temporary lockdown to stop the or slow the spread, uh, and the marathon was one month away. I'll admit I didn't think the marathon would be canceled, but you were in the front row seat. You were in the um, 
um, driver's seat. Uh, share with our listeners what it would be, what it was like for you to uh, see the lockdown and know you had this epic event with thousands and thousands of people and millions and millions of dollars of, of money on the line. How did it unfold for you? Well, first, remember that the, the Boston Marathon go, goes off uh, through the kindness of all the cities and towns and the state. Uh, and with the initial advent and apparent rapid growth that was coming in COVID, it's the, the responsibility for public safety resides with governmental officials, and they had to take action, and they did. Uh, and interestingly, uh, the, the lead in doing that, the, the person who was the convener to get all the municipalities together uh, was then Mayor Walsh in Boston. Uh, he hosted a couple of meetings uh, in the Eagle Room at City Hall uh, with representatives of each of the cities and towns uh, and city officials to talk about what would be best for everybody. Uh, and it, it appeared uh, perhaps you know, 10 days before the actual, it, what happened initially was a postponement, and perhaps 10 days before that, uh, a group of all those officials gathered at City Hall to talk about the issues. Uh, and go back and consider what they thought would be fair to their citizens. Uh, <clears throat> there was then another meeting at City Hall in which decisions were pretty much made, uh, and they were made by consensus. Uh, there wasn't uh, a lot of, uh, of wrangling or back and forth. Everyone was aligned on the need to have the event be safe, to focus on runners, on volunteers, and the, the hundreds of thousands, millions of people who live around here. Uh, and no one wanted to bring a disease in uh, that could hurt residents. Uh, so uh, it was finally decided that would happen uh, on, I think it was Friday, the 13th of March. Sure. Uh, all those representatives once again got together at Boston City Hall, uh, and we announced that the race would be postponed. Uh, in those days, we all lived with the hope that the disease would be curtailed, that it would be brought under control somehow or other, which, of course, it was not. I see. Uh, now, I remember that. Uh, I wasn't um, wasn't qualified and wasn't planning to run in 2020, but I did run in 2007. And if, uh, I'm sure you remember that was the year with the Nor'easter. And uh, um, when there was a huge storm coming in, and it was going to hit us exactly when the race was to begin. And legend has it, and I never actually knew the answer, was that uh, they only held the marathon because they were afraid if they canceled it, the runners would show up anyway and they would run without support. Um, was there any concern uh, at the BAA with this uh, particular postponement, ultimately cancellation, that runners would show up anyway? And if so, did you do anything to uh, sort of um, discourage that kind of behavior? Well, uh, in, in the beginning with the marathon postponed, the risk of that happening seemed modest uh, as of Patriots Day, but there were certainly publicity campaigns from all public agencies and from us at the BAA saying, please don't do this. Uh, none of us wanted to have the marathon postponed, uh, but we'll look to it in the fall. Let's all gather together then when it's safe. Um, turned out uh, that, that it couldn't happen. And there's always the risk if, if, if there is a need to, to cancel or to postpone that people will show up anyway. Uh, it, it's, it's a factor, you can't rule it out. But in other years, in 2012, when we had uh, a day that was very, very hot and we knew it was coming uh, and had to decide whether the race could go forward safely 
or not, as we examine things like the wet bulb globe temperature, which none of us had ever heard of before, uh, <laughs> one of the factors was, well, if we call it off, people will come anyway. Uh, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Uh, if we decide that the right decision is not to hold it so as to protect human life, uh, then <laughs> we'll be able to find a way uh, to keep things safe out on the course. And when I say we, I mean all the municipalities and, uh, and state officials. I remember 2012 as well, and it was indeed quite a hot day. Um, uh, uh, I won't forget that soon. Um, now, um, as you mentioned, the, the race was initially going to be postponed. Um, did you effectively have to have all the sort of ducks in a row waiting for the green light? I mean, you can't just cancel it and say, we'll see you next year. As you said, you were hoping for a fall. How do you keep all the uh, resources uh, in line, and then ultimately, what was going to be the green signal? What was going to be that um, uh, criteria that said, "Okay, now it is safe"? I mean, do you have weekly meetings or monthly meetings? How does one prepare for something that is so uncertain? Well, in, in the period between April uh, of 2020 and then getting into the summertime when the race was called off entirely, of course, there were regular uh, conversations. Uh, but for us at the BAA, we follow the lead uh, of public officials. Uh, we do all we can to provide them with the information that they need to perform the best analysis they can to tell them what we can do, the mitigation measures that we could, can put in place. And of course, there are a great many that have been put in place now to do it uh, in October. Uh, but in the end, they decide. Uh, and there, there are meetings. Uh, there's also a great sense of collegiality among all the public officials, public safety officials, and all the people who work on the marathon on the BAA side, which is to say our modest staff of 30 people uh, and the organizing committee of 100 more and a whole lot of other people who work on it. And what's normally the better part of 10,000 volunteers, everybody gets along and works hard on it. Uh, and, and that includes municipal public safety people, state people, federal agencies. There's a whole bunch of federal agencies that get involved. If you watch TV, you know that federal agencies and local agencies never get along. <laughs> and all I can say about that in our context is that they never fail to get along. Everybody treats it as their race and they're going to do what they can to make it work. Uh, and, and there's a whole lot of them. There are about 4,000 uh, uh, state, local, federal officers, one way or another, uh, that, that get involved in this. Some of them you see, some of them you never see. That, that, that's wonderful. So you, um, it was determined that it will, 2020 will effectively be canceled. Uh, now uh, we turn the page and we're all blessed with this wonderful um, uh a, a collection of vaccines that seem to be safe and effective and uh, um, we're a highly vaccinated uh, part of the world. Now we uh, we see all the lights turning green and we uh, have decided we can pull off a marathon. Um, then you're tasked with, if we're not going to use the third uh, Monday in April, we're going to find some other day in the fall. Um, what decisions were around choosing Columbus Day uh, naturally, the fall is a big time for other marathons. Uh, historically, New York and Chicago like the fall. Um, what made you pick uh, Columbus Day as the day? Well, first and foremost, it's not our choice. Uh, 
um, uh, what our view was we could wait till next April and do it then. Uh, we don't have to uh, intrude on other things that, that normally go on. Uh, at the same time, if the if public officials were welcoming to the idea, we're happy to do our part to help reopen society and do uh, do our part in helping to reopen the economy. Um, uh, just parenthetically, this year we're doing no large dinners, no post-race party. All of it is involved in sending uh, runners out to uh, eat in restaurants uh, and entertain themselves in other establishments. Um, so we had communications with all of the cities and towns with the Commonwealth to see what uh, for them would be uh, the best time to do it. Uh, and uh, it was that uh, Monday in October uh, that was selected. Wonderful. I think uh, it, it's great that you uh, characterize the race in the way you do. In other words, it's not the BAA trying to uh, ask um, the world to accommodate it, but rather you are facilitating something that belongs to uh, the region, the runners, the, the the individual towns. In other words, you you help facilitate something that is uh, is shared and owned by by everyone. Uh, that's that's a wonderful way to look at it. You did mention the uh, the economy. Uh, I I had uh, done some research before the show, and I saw a typical marathon, Boston Marathon injects roughly $200 million into the Boston economy, even a, a smaller one uh, that you've planned for the fall, uh, that's gonna have to uh, have a substantially uh, uh, salutary effect on the economy from Boston to, to Hopkinton. Uh, any estimate of how, uh, how much this will bring to the region? I, I don't have an estimate. Um, normally it's the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau that does that. Um, They've done it for a long time. They do it really well. They've also got a whole lot going on right now. And all of their normal analytics kind of don't fit uh, uh, because so much is different. Most notably, the number of people coming to run uh, is different. Um, uh, but we're also changing the things we do. So some things that runners would do, some meals they might get at City Hall for the pasta dinner or going to a post-race party. Well, now they'll go out uh, into a, a, a local dining uh, establishment uh, and eat there. So I, I think probably for them, number one, they're really busy trying to help people who merchants of all kinds who really need it. And, and secondly, just the, the, the normal analytics are, are hard to apply. So let's talk about, um, again, things that are, are different about this this race, um, this first uh, post-pandemic race. What safety precautions uh, will the runners need to take? And I, I guess I'll, I'll ask that above and beyond what the town and the city uh, require, um, because those those are a, a whole nother level. Uh, as you mentioned, these are tens of thousands of, of runners coming in from all over the world. The runners are typically from uh, far reaches of the globe. Uh, all these people converging in one spot and, uh, and and getting very close together. I won't call it a super spreader event, but it's 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 a very difficult thing to control. How will you ensure the runners are uh, kept safe, and of course the spectators as well? Well, first off, at the at the very broadest level, we did a survey of everybody, all the runners and all the volunteers, and with a, a response rate in the I think seventy eight percent range, a hugely high response rate. Uh, for any survey, uh, somewhere in the range of 95% of both runners and volunteers uh, at, at that time in August that they were or planned to be vaccinated. Um, so to, just to start with, that's helpful. Um, uh, but that's all it is, is helpful. It's indicative. Um, 
what, what will be done uh, is that everyone who comes to run will have to pick up their number, their uh, bib number, uh, at the expo at the Heinz Convention Center. Mm-hmm. In order to get into the expo, they will either have to show proof of vaccination uh, or a, a negative COVID test within the pre- uh, preceding perhaps 48 hours at that point, 72 at the most. Uh, and once they're able to do that, they will be given uh, a wristband, a colored wristband, um, it's kind of like a concert thing, sort of cloth, and it, it doesn't come off, but it doesn't bother you. Uh, but you'll then wear that uh, through the race. Uh, that wristband gets you into the expo and ultimately gets you out to the start. The wristband tells you when to go to the, your bus on the morning of the race so that you can get out to Hopkinton in the proper order, get off the bus and just get going. Uh, in an almost rolling start, which is uh, a big difference this year because of social distancing. We don't want to have big crowds of people gather in what we have called Athletes Village out in Hopkinton. So as a as a safety device that way, uh, first, all runners have to show that they're either vaccinated or they have uh, have been tested. And we will provide tests for those that, that don't have them. Uh, the tents set up and they can be uh, tested right there before they, they go into the expo. But then when the race comes, they will go out, uh, as I described, in individual buses, get off and go. So that provides a whole lot less density on the course as they run uh, than is normally the case. Usually there are four waves of about 7,500 runners each. So they're all packed together for a long time to start with. That's not true this time. That's interesting. Uh, I remember the days when we all went off at, with, with the gun um, and then uh, to the waves uh, start. I, I was unaware that this is a rolling start. So uh, paint that picture for us. Uh, I'm imagining the elites. Uh, they're getting on a, a yellow school bus like the rest of us. They get out to Hopkinton. I suppose that a busload of people tow the line and the gun goes off. They start running. And as the buses arrive in uh, Hopkinton, rather than go to the Athletes Village, they uh, mosey on towards the start, and 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 when they get, when they get there, they they head off down the course, and and their chip will measure their net time from the start to the finish. Is that more or less what you're describing? Uh, that is it exactly. Okay. And they may want to stop at a comfort station and maybe have a drink of water, but that that's it. Other than that, it's good. Right. Well, that's good. It'll make for less anxiety uh, sitting there uh, uh, thinking about it uh, in the athlete's village. Um, now, I want to uh, uh, think about this going forward. Do you see now, again, the next marathon is going to come up rather quickly in, in next April. Uh, do you see these kinds of special uh, uh, procedures uh, persisting? Or do you think by then uh, we'll get a sense of um, uh, you know, we'll have a, a broader vaccination rate or a better sense of, uh, uh, let's say, less intrusive ways to, uh, to engender uh, a sense of safety? Yeah, I, I don't mean this as frivoly, frivolously as it may sound, but I'm 100% certain that we have no idea. Uh, <laughs> if, if, there is, if there is one characteristic of this disease, apart from the human tragedy uh, that it has brought, it is that it is completely unpredictable and uncertain. Um, so w- we all hope so. Uh, yeah. we, we will look to April as being more like what, what had been normal for a number of years. Uh, but one, one never knows you hope for the best plan for the worst, uh, indeed go with it. 
Now, uh, we've uh, been all mar marathon all the time on, on this uh, conversation. I, I want to bring attention to the BAA uh, uh, being a, a wonderful uh, and, frankly, a very elite uh, running club. You don't just do a marathon. You do, of course, uh, the uh, half marathon, usually in the fall, and you do a 5K. Um, and you support running and runners around the world. You mentioned at the top of the show, the BA used to send champion runners to the Olympics. Um, I, I hope you aspire to do the same in the future. But tell us a little more about the good work that the BA does uh, for runners and for the region. The, the mission for the BAA, going all the way back to 1887, is, in effect, the, to promote health and fitness. Um, we have it written on the wall. Uh, the, the language has changed some over the years. Uh, for a long time, that was expressed principally through the conduct of events. Um, uh, the BAA was not a, a particularly well financially endowed enterprise. We would put on races for people. Uh, in more recent years, um, we initiated more community engagement programs, mostly kid focused. So there would be uh, relays for school kids from Boston and schools up and down the course and elsewhere in greater Boston uh, on Marathon Weekend in Copley Square. Uh, we have uh, conducted cross country uh, events, the mayor's cross country race uh, and other such things in Franklin Park with groups. Um, uh, we have worked with the Dimmick Center in Roxbury to assist them as they put on the Dimmick Road to Wellness 5K, the first event, run, walk event in Roxbury that uh, since the 1980s, I think. Uh, but in general, there's much more room for us uh, to do better work, uh, to engage more and assist more in the communities that have made it possible for us to do what we do in these events. So for us, uh, we see uh, the expansion of our work in community support as what uh, will become our largest area uh, of growth. Um, we're in the process of working with community leaders to establish something a little bit called the Boston Running Collaborative uh, in order to, to help people in various communities, principally communities of, of color, to get out and run or walk or move uh, or do whatever is comfortable uh, for them. Uh, we will be uh, awarding on this 125th running of the Boston Marathon, $125,000 in grants to various community organizations around Boston uh, and have that be the beginning of such a process going forward. That's wonderful. I think it was a, uh, it's uh, almost an ap apocryphal story about if, uh, if running were a drug, uh, it would be the most prescribed drug uh, in the world by doctors. It's, uh, it's good for you. It's good for your physical health, mental health. And I think it can bring together lots of communities from around the, the, the city, the region. Uh, it's all good work. So we're getting uh, close to the end of our time together. I have to ask one um, uh, runner question. This will probably uh, help our, uh, our downloads. Um, we talked about our uh, your something that the BA does control entirely for the marathon, which is the qualifying time. Uh, as I say, the open time is three oh five. Is there any plan in the near future to uh, change that uh, qualifying time, either up or down, uh, in, in the foreseeable future? The the selection, the uh, specification of the qualifying time is is driven by athletes, by runners. Uh, the the faster they run. Um, then the uh, the greater the the qualifying time is is lowered, um, and and we are keenly aware how frustrating that can be for people. It's very hard to uh, to achieve for for most 
people uh, and you work and work and work and you don't quite get there. Uh, and as one who works and didn't get there on a number of occasions, I, I know how that feels. I, I wish we had more space. Um, uh, we don't, and it would be unfair to try to intrude significantly more on all those cities and towns. So it, it's, it's really, it's the athletes themselves uh, who set the qualifying times. So we keep getting faster and you keep lowering the time. <laughs> well, I'll say uh, I'm very proud of, to have qualified for the marathon. I've, I've I failed more times than I succeeded, but uh, it was one of the great thrills of my life. I think I'm going to have my BQ uh, etched on my a tombstone. Um, I don't know if I'm the only guy who feels that way, uh, but it's really a, a privilege and an honor to have participated in the race and, and really a privilege and an honor to get a chance to talk with you about the challenges faced by someone at, at the helm of a, a very prestigious, the most prestigious running club on earth. Uh, you've been very generous to, to spend some time. Uh, the race is coming up in, uh, in a few weeks. Uh, are you ready? Uh, answer, yes. Uh, ready in all the normal ways. And normally putting on the Boston Marathon is an immensely complicated event. This year, it's more complicated than ever uh, with all of the considerations involving COVID uh, and, and the many, many manifestations of that. Uh, it is now we're down to just sort of more like the putting on the race stuff, the normal stuff. It feels a little more comfortable, uh, but we have had a panel of medical epidemiological public safety uh, officials working with us for months and months and months. And the plans have changed on multiple occasions as the nature and effect of the disease changes. Um, uh, so we, we know that we are privileged to have the opportunity to do what we do. And no one knows that more than I do. Who gets to do this? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's, it, uh, I'm sure as a runner, uh, it must bring a thrill to, to, to pull this, this whole thing off. So I, I look forward to the race uh, on um, uh, October 11th, and uh, I wish you the best of luck and uh, uh, Godspeed and uh, re rejoice we conquer, right? Yeah, <laughs> we'll try to come to a happier end with those words, perhaps. <laughs> That's uh, not a truck. To... All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom. You've, you've been wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for joining Hublong. You are kind to inquire. Thank you. Bye. This has been another episode of Hubwonka, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support us. Uh, it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes uh, podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find us at Hubwonk, you can offer a five-star rating or a glowing review. Uh, it's always helpful if you share us with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments, uh, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.